Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Nate, where are we going today? Well, Neil, you told me we were going to step outside, which is great. I've been wanting a piece of you for years. <laughs> There'll be no fisticuffs here today. No, we are going outside, that's right, with Les Stroud. And he's going to talk about his book, Wild Outside, Around the World with Survivor Man, from Anik, Pre- Anik Press, uh, illustrations by Andrew P. Barr. And this book is aimed at a children's audience. Les Stroud has been credited with creating the survival TV genre. As I understand it, he saw the reality show Survivor and thought he would show the world what that's really all about. Survivor Man debuted in 2000 and aired for 18 years on OLN, Discovery, Science Channel, and elsewhere around the world. Les, the world-famous survivalist, is also a creator, artist, and author of four books, two of which, Survive, Essential Skills and Tactics to Get You Out of Anywhere Alive, and Will to Live, both published by HarperCollins. They were both Globe and Mail and New York Times bestsellers. Last March, he, last March, he released Wild Outside, Around the World with Survivor Man, which was supposed to be the focus of a uh, Season 5 episode, but the third wave of COVID-19 derailed that until now. And a little update as well about this book. It was honored uh, by the Ontario Library Association with the 2022 Yellow Cedar Award for Best Nonfiction for Readers in Grades 4 to 8. In the history of Sports Lit, we have yet to welcome a guest like him. Yeah, possibly uh, we're not the most outdoorsy types of guys, Neil. Well... Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely can count uh, how many camping trips I've been on uh, on one hand and possibly with one finger. Um, <laughs> um, well, you know, the reason <laughs> I digress or we digressed, the reason we haven't welcomed a guest like him is because outdoor recreation doesn't necessarily fit into the structure of our wheelhouse on Sports Lit. That is to say, we usually converse with individuals who have either competed solo or as part of a team in a larger league or association like the NHL or NBA. And of course, we've talked to the authors who've documented their lives. In that world, remember, the main goal is to capture a title or win a championship, not to make it out of the woods in one piece um, or alive. (laughs) So we're going to file this episode of Sports Lit under the heading of Sports and Outdoor Recreation. Uh, Brought to you by Bass Pro Fishing. No, Um, a slight bit of a stretch for us into uncharted territory with a guest who makes his living out of venturing into such ground. Indeed, and the appeal of Les Stroud, Neil, is, is pretty widespread. Well, of course, the first point of reference for me is, and it's one that we will ask about, is the episode of The Office that's actually titled Survivor Man. Of course, the setup is, well, the background was that Steve Carell and his wife Nancy Walls loved the uh, Survivor Man show, so Steve Carell wrote an episode in which Michael Scott, the, you know, clueless regional manager at the dunder mifflin paper company decides to go out in the woods and be survivor man after being feeling hurt and left out when he's not invited on a weekend wilderness retreat that all the other 
regional managers got to go to. Even Toby Flenderson, the redheaded sad sack HR rep, got to go. So Michael decides to just be like Les Stroud, and as Michael puts it, just go out into the woods and try not to die. Uh, and it, it, the results are hilarious. And it's one episode that maybe I didn't get it at the time because I didn't know the uh, material they were ref- referencing. But then you realize, wow, Steve Carell understood why people found the situations his character would get into funny and still rooted for him, even though he would get himself it was entirely his fault and they also understood why people like watching Les Stroud uh, battle the elements and to, to put it lightly yeah and definitely looking forward to, to uh, uh, talking to Les, to Les today uh, you know just how he's you know I guess created the the taste that people you know you know res- savor him by uh, because I mean no one knows what's going to be popular what what's going to strike a chord with people it's kind of funny we I've seen Les mention that his favorite movie of all time is Jeremiah Johnson, which starred Robert Redford. It's a 50-year-old movie now, but Robert Redford plays, you know, this mountain man in the American Old West. And Les has said that's the one movie that got survivalism right. And what's funny is uh, the fellow who wrote that was a guy named John Milius. Now, people might hear that name. He, uh, he directed Red Dawn back in the 80s, which was a popular movie, maybe just a few years before our, our time, time, Neil, but he also was the writer of Jeremiah Johnson. Unbeknown to me, when I found this quote from him about being a you know a creative person, uh, John Milius once said, "How arrogant it it is to assume that you know the market, that you know what's popular today. Only Steven Spielberg knows what pop is popular today. He's the only one in the history of man who has ever figured that out. So write what you want to see, because if you don't, you're not going to have any true passion in it." And it's not going to be done with any true artistry. And you think of uh, Les Stroud and the, you know, the ventures he's had. I think, think you can fairly, uh, you know, impose the idea that you know his life has been his art. And he, I think he's, you know, I've seen him be relatively open about maybe, hey, that maybe he'd have a much higher net worth if it, he was more, you know, commercial or, or careerist. But uh, you know, us, uh, even though we're not the intended audience for the book, because it's for kids, uh, Wild Outside really did you know affirm how it's important to appreciate nature and feel more connected into it and maybe that leads into thinking about how how we treat it and even prior to learning that this won an award for its appeal to children it made me think a lot about how my five-year-old nephew hey there maddox is uh you know figuring out the world you know he's growing up here in you know southern ontario where our unofficial sport official sport is uh sprawl you know 300 plus acres of farmland disappear every day but you know Maddox you know he's a kid who's you know blessed with parents who love him and buy him lots of toys but you know his favorite thing to do is learn animal facts he he can you can see him have adventures and amuse himself just playing with sticks in the backyard and and making up up games outside so definitely uh we'll be hanging on to my copy of wild outside to give to him in a few years when you know when he's only five so when, you know when his reading level gets there it's a little little dog here because we have been waiting a, a year to do this due to COVID, neil yeah and we're going to hear from the author next on sports lit And we're back with Les Stroud. Nate, uh, it's going to be a fun day for us. We've been looking forward to this one for a while. 
Indeed, yeah. We're going to take it outside after I've been sitting on the couch all day working from home. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nate, I think you're uh, first up with the first question. Yes, uh, and welcome to Sports Lit Less. Uh, as it noted, Neil and I are venturing a bit afield with this. Uh, you know yourself best. Uh, how, how do you explain how the how your brand and the books and the TV shows have, have gained such a wide appeal? Well, that's actually that's a that's a loaded question in many <laughs> ways, um, and and one that you know I guess behooves me to go back into the history a little bit. Uh, if you think about it or you look back, uh, before Survivor Man, I mean, the, the entire survival uh, TV genre didn't exist. And uh, you, I mean, you had me in a situation where I was literally in, in uh, meetings with the television executives trying to convince them to, to take my series. I mean, I was getting quotes back, you know, exactly verbatim, such as, uh, oh, less. No one's ever going to want to watch survi people surviving on television. You know, that's from, from major executives at major networks. And I believe differently. And so when Survivor Man took off, uh, you know, I had the run of it for three years at least before uh, the, the rest of, you know, everybody sort of jumped on board. And they still can't do, they still can't do what Survivor Man did in terms of authenticity. But the answer to your question, and I know I'm beating around a bit, but the answer to your question, initially the way I used to answer that was it feels like or it felt like I, with the survival instruction and the connection to nature side of what I did and do and still do and teach, uh, it's like it touches everybody in their rawest state. And people, you know, there's the guys who on the machismo side of it wonder, oh, I wonder if I could be like Jeremiah Johnson and I wonder if I could be a mountain man at... You know, but even even that, you know, other than that style of person, I think it's people looking at it going, you know, that would be fascinating. I wonder how I would do if I really had nothing and had to survive out in the wilderness. And it, uh, and of course, for me, I, I was really just trying to connect people to nature and survival was a way to facilitate that. So, yeah. so go, go ahead, ahead, Nate. Go ahead, Nate. Oh, go on. No, actually, you can go ahead now. Um, is it true that... Uh, you wanted to show you wanted to show the survivor series how it was really done yeah so the only thing that even you could say sort of i mean there were other shows that i enjoyed like bush tucker man out of australia um i did not see Ray. i never I hadn't heard of ray Mears until well after um i've been on air for a long time um uh but again they weren't doing survival well survivor the mark Burnett series came along but that was all staged and set up and i saw that and i thought first of all this is just outward bound with a bunch of hot hard bodies <laughs> competitions right and I thought, no that's not right this is the, and and at that point you got to understand i had been teaching survival for at least 15 years so for me it was like blasphemy <laughs> it was like, what are you doing? That's so idiotic, and that's not survival. And and that led me down the pathway of, of you know calling up networks saying, listen, let me show you how it's really done. And uh, and I you know eventually I made the right connection and the right phone call and got my my air on TV, my show on TV to air as a pilot, and uh, and then a second pilot, and then you know and then a series. So yeah, absolutely, it was a reaction to. Uh, the Mark Burnett Survivor Series. What did they say to you? when? They, what did that person, that executive, and you can tell me who it was if you want, and what ne network, what, I mean, well, we know the network, but what did they, they say to you uh, that that when they, they did accept it, they, did they say, hey, you know what, uh, this could work? Or what, what was it that they said to you when it did work? It was an interesting day, actually. I'd already done two pilot versions for a science program in Canada called The Daily Planet. 
And uh, it had done very well for them. And that's when I was pitching it as a TV series saying, look at what I've got here. Look at these two calling cards I've got in my hands, Pilot 1 and Pilot 2. I can do a series, guys. I could go around the world. And, and I was speaking with Jill Offman at Discovery Canada. And she's the one who said, Less, no one is ever going to want to watch people surviving on television, right? And she was the new blood, and she just didn't want to have anything to do with me. I was the old guard, as she thought, even though mm. I was obviously very brand new to it. Um, I literally walked down the hallway, not you know, 60 yards away, into Anna Stambolic's office at Outdoor Life, uh, uh, the Outdoor Life Network in Canada, as it was called then. Mm -hmm. And she, Anna said to me, "You're kidding. Jill passed on this." I love what you did with these pilots. Absolutely. Let's talk series. And, you know, that along with um, uh, the Discovery Channel in the United States and Steve Burns down there saying the same thing to me, the rest is history. And and that's changed, cha that, that, that walk down the hall changed your life significantly. Now, I'll go back, and you, you've always had self-belief because you've always done a lot of different things, right? From music, working at much music, to deciding to go out to, I think, the Halliburton area and... and you know, you, you basically, you've had a lot of self-belief and you're, you're creative in a lot of areas. So up until that point, I think you were probably doing pretty well. But what did Survivor Man then do for you? Like, I'm, I'm imagining it, it's allowed you to live pretty well. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, up until then, I was not doing pretty well. I mean, I really spent uh, legitimately, this is a legitimate and candid comment coming to you. I was 45 years old when I first made more money than the poverty level living mm. in Canada for I've got now you got to think about it, I got a family of four two kids at home a wife that did not work and I was 45 years old still making under the poverty line okay right. so when survivor man uh, so so I was an outdoor guide I was an instructor I was a blue-collar guy for on uh, you know 75 different jobs on and on it goes Yes, I had that stint at Much Music, and but things changed, and I got away from that. I was still trying to be a rock star back then. <laughs> so when the when Survivor Man took off, it did legitimately give me a real professional life for the first time in in my life. Now I was a professional guide, and I loved it. But you know, you really don't make any money doing that. You just have an awesome life. Um, and Survivor Man gave me something to focus on for longer than three months. I mean, I don't think I ever focused on anything in my life. I never had plans that went anywhere past three months. And when, as soon as I signed Survivor Man, I remember saying, this is the first time in my life I know what I'm doing for, mo for more than the next 12 months. And it changed everything. But I was 40 then, which means it was another five years of being that Canadian TV celebrity. I'm on Jimmy Fallon, I'm on Ellen, I'm on The View, and I'm still making under the poverty line and that's a reality people are not aware of that when you drive when you're driven and you're working and trying to be an artist in whatever field you can go a long way and be very successful but still not be making any money yeah true say um especially I mean, a lot of musicians will tell you that during covid too you know how, how hard yeah. it was especially for musicians um you um, had written uh, books previously aimed at an adult audience. So why did you choose to do a children's book? Uh, and, and I will, uh, we did mention this uh, in our intro, but this book was actually released in March of 2021. But um, we're having you on now because of, you know, after the pandemic. But I want, yeah, that's the question. You, you'd written a, a books for adults, um, and then this is your first uh, children's book. So why? 
Well, first of all, so wonderfully, my adult books like Will to Live, that was up for a children's award. Mm. And Survive is heralded by every kid who's ever gone to scouting or camp, kids camp or wants to be out in nature, got my Survive manual. Um, and so kids, I mean, the wonderful thing was Survivor Man was a big hit with kids. I had kids sending me pictures of them dressed up as me for Halloween. <laughs> so you knew then it's like, of course, this resonates with kids. Why wouldn't it? I loved watching Jacques Cousteau when I was growing up. So it totally resonated with kids, just Survivor Man itself. And this was an opportunity for me to say, now I want to write a book directly to the kids, focused on the kids. And, um, you know, using, and I had to learn, I had a lot to learn. Annick Press were phenomenal at working with me and Claire Caldwell. They were, they were, she was brilliant. And they helped me carve my language so that I'm speaking in a, in a great way to seven to 14 year olds. And, uh, and now this is my chance to say, you know what, you've already loved the stuff that I did. How about I just talk directly to you and we'll bypass the parents. And, and to what extent are you with this book and with uh, some of the activities you're involved in now, to what extent are you trying to sort of help younger people tune into nature and the, and the value of, you know, ecology and conservation and, 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 and things like that that are going to become more and more important over the next few years? Well, to what extent? I suppose really it lies as the basis of everything I ever do. My music, my writing, my filmmaking, my speaking, my, my appearances, everything I do has always really got this baseline of I really just want to connect you back to nature. I want to get you back outside. You need to get back outside. I want to get you to the parks. I want to get you in a canoe. I want to get you on snowshoes, skis. You know, like I just want people to go back out and connect with the natural world. And so everything I create as a creator uh, does have that. If it's not directly in the background, it's always, it's always lingering. For example, you know, in my music, you know, a lot of my lyrics are either about nature or connecting to nature. And even if they aren't, they sort of are. If you look at somebody like John Denver, he's writing Annie's song about the love of his life, his wife Annie, and yet what he's, he's saying, you, you fill up my senses like a, a walk in the forest, like a, the mountains mm. in springtime, you know, uh, you know, like a storm on the desert. He's reflecting upon nature, and I, I, I'm a big fan of his, but I, but I, I do the same thing, and so to the extent that I really don't know if I could almost do it any other way, uh, it's really been a big part of me to connect kids to nature uh in in all that i do and now my new series wild harvest on television i i just got told recently there was a five-year-old boy who came in and he picked some dandelions and he said yeah and his mom said what are you doing he said well survivor man told me like we can eat these <laughs> it's like i love that you know well you know because we talked about this early earlier before we started recording um i will ask you about wild harvest uh, you're in town uh in toronto right now uh editing that uh and that's your new project so um, yeah, I mean, uh, basic question here, but tell us a little bit more about it. <laughs> so Wild Harvest um, was a wonderful opportunity that cropped up between myself and Chef Paul Rogalski. He's a wonderful, he's a world-class chef. His restaurant's been listed in the top 100 restaurants in the world. It's called Rouge Restaurant in Calgary, Alberta. And we'd always, t we met on the set of some other silly, ill-fated show as we were just doing some guesting there. And and we said, you know, we got to do this someday. Like, what, what if I took people out and showed them all the local foraging they could do? And I mean, not only in the forest, but in, in, in behind Walmart, 
you know, in that field, that leftover field that's over there that nobody's spraying. It's not covered with pesticides. It's just there. And I, what's over there? Oh, look at that. There's all this wild horseradish. Okay. Now I'll show that. Let's take them into the kitchen, Paul, and you show them how to work with that in the kitchen. No matter, and, and so that's what the show's about. And, uh, um, and it's not just local foraging or wild edibles. He's allowed to use sugar, salt, you know, whatever he wants so that it's accessible to people to say, you know what? I have been able to absolutely positively identify uh, dandelion and Les has shown me where to find it and how to find it correctly. And now Chef Paul has shown me how I can work with it in the kitchen. Let's do it. Let's do dandelion fritters tonight. That's kind of it right there. And it's it's killing it right now. It's on Cottage Life TV in Canada, PBS stations in the States, and National Geographic in Asia uh, Asia countries. And we're working on getting it all the way around the world. So it's called uh, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest. Will we see a Les Stroud's Wild Harvest with Chef Paul cookbook? Already out. It's already there. I've got, <laughs> I've got some down in my car right now. We did season one uh, uh, Wild Harvest Recipe book is out. We're working on season two Wild Harvest Recipe book. So absolutely everything you see in the show Paul then puts it down on paper, and then I tell like a, a mini story about you know that that moment of uh, of that episode. And yeah, we're putting those out for sure. Uh, and and as a matter of fact, it's been nominated for um, uh, a cookbook award. So there there you go. Speak going back to this book, um, which also won an award, the Yellow Cedar from the Ontario Libraries Association. Um, you you just talked about uh, you know the idea. Okay, you know there's a you know the no frills and there's a a field that hasn't been sprayed so you're you know you can you don't have to go far uh, to farmland to find this stuff and and this book begins with you kind of talking about urban exploring in Mimico um so do we want kids do you want kids to know that hey listen like you might see me on Survivor Man and I'm way out somewhere in like James Bay but actually you can probably go to uh, you know the park across your street and and explore nature as well and start there as a matter of fact neil that's the point that's the whole point is to say your imagination can run wild down in the humber valley if you live in toronto central park if you live in new york you know go out to topanga cabin canyon if you live in los angeles like they don't have to go far they don't have to go to peru and they don't go to the amazon <laughs> like me or some top of some mountain um, I grew up going, I mean, yeah, I, that story I tell is, you know, I went in behind Queensway Hospital underneath the QEW, you know, in Toronto. I mean, it, you couldn't get a more city kind of place, but the Humber River was back there and there were blue herons and fox and deer and, you know, uh, red winged blackbirds and insects. Loved it. And that was, you know, in young life, I would go there to explore. In older life, I would walk my dogs there. So, yes, that's the point, Neil, is that, is that, while you're a kid and you don't have control of your own destiny, um, you can still have wilderness exploration. You can go to your friend's house who has a backyard if you live in an apartment or the park down at the end of the street. Were you so you would go out on your own and do this? I mean, um, you know, uh, you, you, you know, anyone that excels at what they do, it's it's always interesting to know. For example, you know, Sidney Crosby's dad. I believe was drafted by the Canadians. So there's always that influence. Did, did your parents have a kind of any influence on you doing this, or 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 you know you having the the desire to to kind of go this route? And I do know you do a lot of different things, but I'm I'm specifically talking about the survivalist route and, and appreciating nature. Uh, on a on a superficial level, yes. On an actual level, zero. Not a <laughs> nothing zippo. 
um, my, my family background, and I don't mind sharing it because it's important. Because so often, I will, like you, I, I will listen to different stories. You know, Wayne Gretzky's dad is a famous situation. Right. right. And you will hear uh, um, a friend of mine, uh, Denise Donlan, who was mm-hmm. at one point head of Sony yeah. from Canada, I think. And, and I, Much you know, music. We, much music. We worked together. Married to Murray McLaughlin, McLaughlin you know, wonderful singer-songwriter. Right. You know, she's got a, a great book out uh, called Fearless as Possible. She talks about her dad. And I hear those stories. And a tear comes to my eye. Why? Because my background is incredibly dysfunctional. I had none of that. No mentorship, no background, no guidance. The, the superficial level where I say yes is simply that my dad's family, everybody went fishing. So I did have the opportunity to be, be a kid who had a father who, yes, you know, I, the odd time he would take me bass fishing or I would go with our cousins. And then my mom had, um, her mom had a, place up north in Bracebridge and so we would after she died we uh, her mom died we would go up there and we had a cottage mm. but honestly for me it's different the story is that my exploration of the wilderness in Bracebridge in behind the cottage was actually me escaping my family it mm. was my place of refuge and I know there are people out there that might be listening to this that can relate to that as well rather than I had the greatest mom and dad and they showed me how to ski I didn't have any of that. I had to find it myself, and um, and uh, and I did, you know. And really, my mentors were Jacques Cousteau and Tarzan. And then later <laughs> in life, when I was in my twenties, we were uh, it was filmmaker Bill Mason. That's where I found my mentors on uh, in film. And now uh, people look to you as a mentor, so you're paying it forward, as you talked about the kid with the dandelions. And I'm sure you have so many stories like that. Um, Going back to Mimico, Mimico and growing up, I mean, Mimico is 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 known probably, uh, in, especially in Toronto, but Canada is, you know, a bastion of, you know, hockey and lacrosse. Um, and so I was wondering, um, did you did you grow up uh, competing in those traditional sports or did you say, no way, I'm just I'd rather just go and explore? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> wow. you have no idea what you're tapping into with that question. Um <laughs> I, I, you know, I want, well, on the exploration side of it, I wanted, I really wanted, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. I was given the information that that wasn't meant, that was for rich people. You can't, you'll never, you can't do that. You know, having a, a good camera is for rich people. That's what I was told. I was downplayed on that. Okay. So then we jump over to the other world, the world of sports and, and, and school and, and all of that. Um, in Mimico, it's very true. If you weren't a hockey star, you were nothing. And uh, I tried, um, but no, I was pathetic. I mean, I was really good for about two years when I was 20 to 22 because I was just a lazy bum who only played hockey. But other than those two years, uh, no, I sucked at hockey. And all my friends played hockey. And when you say it was a bastion of hockey, like my buddies, I mean, I actually got to play once with Brandon Shanahan. He was a oh, kid. Yeah. He was a oh, okay. time. So we, we really, the bastion of it really was only we had Brandon Shanahan and Dave Boland. <laughs> right and uh, Stewart, uh, Stewart, he played for oh, Toronto Marley or something like that. Oh gosh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his last name. That's it, right? That's that. That was it. But those were big, big right. names. And then, uh, funnily enough, Brandon Shanahan's brother, uh, Brian Shanahan, was a lacrosse star. So I partied with Brian. I mean, a lot of partying with Brian. <laughs> uh, so I came from all of that, but I was in my own mind, I was an outlier. But again, not to give you a sob story, but I was an outlier with nobody teaching me or showing me 
how to be an outlier and make a success of it. it. Took me a long time to make a success of myself, not having that guidance. I'm very big on mentorship and guidance now because I didn't get it. And in Mimico, like I said, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I love hockey and I played it. I played a million games uh, for sure, but uh, I was not on the team. Let me put it that way. But- but you did get your your picture on the wall at the Blue Goose eventually, right? Uh, well, you've done your research. Yeah, that's <laughs> a, the funniest thing ever. I was the first guy on the Hall of Fame in the in the Blue Goose. They put up a Survivor Man poster. It's the guy. He was the guy who got out, and then they added a, a picture, and it was Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, uh, Les, I wanted to ask uh, what with Wild Outside. What criteria did you and the people you work with follow to decide what adventures you were going to share in the book? Because sometimes I notice it would kind of toggle between far-flung places such as Peru, and then the next chapter you're inevitably somewhere up in the in the vast Canadian north. Yeah, and that was uh, Claire Caldwell. Caldwell, I t- I tip my hat to her. She was absolutely brilliant to work with, and she really honed me in, if you will, because my, I've got. I've got so many stories. And then she worked with me on finding a way of saying, well, let's look at categories. Oh, observation, preparation. Ah, these are categories of knowing how to be out in the wilderness. Uh, Adaptation. Okay, well, what stories do you... Okay, well, uh, here's a story, but really I could... And it's not that when I say I could spin the story certain ways, I don't mean that in the the, uh, pejorative sense that you could spin it. It was more a matter of, okay, I could look at this story and I could absolutely use it as a great illustration of how you adapt to a difficult situation. Or I could look at this story, and it's a great way to speak about uh, how you observe when you are in a situation. And that's uh, how we came up with it. That's how we, we honed it in. Claire, as I said, very, very, she would say, you've got to find this. And then I would just keep pitching to her until she went, that's a win. And then, <laughs> and then there, there came our stories. Yeah, was there a way of sort of like visualizing that? Like I'm almost picturing like a chart or something. <laughs> um, you know, just lay it out on you know, work, just lay it out on the page, going okay, categories, eh? Hmm, observe, react, adapt. Oh, okay, I see, I see a, a thing. And then of course you don't want too many categories, right? Um, and uh, and and does it? And in the way, did those did those categories take you from the beginning of the adventure? To the end of the adventure and if they do then that's how we slotted them in it was fun you spoke uh, earlier about uh, as we talked about the the books that you've written for an adult audience like will to live um um which breaks down survival stories and in that of of chris mccandless of into the wild um i wanted to ask you you know that story just resonates with so many people and how much of that has to do with john krakauer making it so compelling well you know the funny thing is i felt that my take on it was a little bit anti john krakauer okay. i love him man. he's a brilliant writer don't get me wrong and i knew his book of course but uh by the same token if you when you read that chapter and especially when you get to the end and anybody who's from alaska or knows survival reads that chapter like yeah you handled that right they right. give me the thumbs up and the reason for that is it came down to i had a little you know, minor bit of gentle disdain for deifying Chris McCandles, uh, when in the end he was a very charming, very quick-witted individual, probably a you know, very, very handsome young man. And when you really read his story and look at everything he did, 
every time he, he got out of these rough situations, which apparently were leading him down his road of adventure, he got out by the skin of his teeth by somebody else helping him. Mm. And what I pointed out in that chapter, he said, in the end, Alaska doesn't give a crap how charming you are. And that was sort of my point is don't, don't just take charm to the wilderness because the wilderness is neutral. But it's also you can perish out there if you don't handle it correctly. I mean, you can perish in the middle of a city if you don't do things right. It's just that we're used to learning that very quickly. When you go out to wilderness, you know, and Chris thought, I, th- I think, you know, I don't necessarily believe he had a death wish. In many ways, I feel he didn't need to die. I think he was foolish, and, and he, he kind of thought charm would always win the day in the end. And as I said, Alaska doesn't care how charming you are. Were you happy uh, to see when they removed the bus um, so others wouldn't try and follow in his footsteps? Well, actually, that's news to me. I wasn't aware that they'd removed it. But in reacting to you, I'll say that eh, I don't think it would have mattered. I don't think anybody's about to go in there and die just like Chris did. Um, most people that follow down that road, uh, <clears throat> they don't have the same um, the same determination that the original legend might have had, and they quit pretty quickly. I mean, I could turn it a little more comical, a little more lighthearted, and say many people have tried to do what Survivor Man does, and they come out with their tail between their legs going, oh, my <laughs> God, there were too many bugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, quick, I'll quickly relate. I was at a baseball press box the other night, and someone asked, what are, what's the mosquito situation like here? Because... One of the other parks in the league is apparently notorious for mosquitoes. And then I got talking about a ball game I played when I was 15 when the mosquitoes were so bad we had garbage can fires down each baseline to drive drive them away from, from biting us. But uh, Les, I wanted to sort of ask, you referenced it er- earlier, uh, the, the film Jeremiah Johnson, uh, Sidney Pollack directed it, Robert Redford starred in it. 50th anniversary of it is actually this year. But why is it your all-time favorite movie and what did it get right about survivalism? Well, two, two. I'll answer the first one because it's a pragmatic sort of question. The reason why it got things right was because of the, the consultant was Larry Dean Olson. Larry Dean Olson is one of the godfathers of modern-day bushcraft and, and, and outdoor survival skills. That's the name of his book, Outdoor Survival Skills. Larry Dean worked with Robert Redford and Sidney Pollock, and they got it correct. Just like my friend David Halliday, who consulted for me, got um, uh, Castaway correct for Tom Hanks. Just like my, one of my best friends, Hap Wilson, got the Grey Owl story correct for Pierce Bronson. We, lived, we live and breathe those skills. And so when we consult, we're, we, we're not, we don't care about Hollywood. And Larry Dean Olson got those skills correctly. So when you're watching Robert Redford going after and go, doing his little rock and steel fire and the snow falls on it, that happened. That's real. You know? And I, failure is the biggest part of the reality. And so it's, I love seeing that whereas you watch other hollywood movies like the one with um oh the guy who plays um odin in uh, thor movies um anthony hopkins in the movie he was in with the big grizzly bear it's a bunch of nonsense that stuff doesn't everything they did is silly in hollywood right so jeremiah johnson got the survival correct to answer the other side of the question is why is it my favorite movie well just watch it i mean it's the ultimate in the romantic thinking of, I want to go be a mountain man. And I want to escape all of this mess and just go be a mountain man. I mean, it, it's just got it all going on. And, and it's all just dreamy romanticism. 
But, you know, sure, I wanted to be Jeremiah Johnson as much as I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. And if you think about it, Nate, the reality is that Survivor, what is Survivor Man? If it is not an amalgam of me pretending to be Jacques Cousteau meets Jeremiah Johnson. <laughs> Les, you're an authentic guy, and so I hate to use the word brand, uh, but I want to ask you, you know, how... You know, business-wise, how careful are you as a guy who kind of keeps it real? You know, how how careful are you with selling? You know, Survivor Man or Les Stroud out to the public? Like, let's say someone said, "I want to have a Survivor Man kerosene lamp co- collection," like, um, you know, and sell it for fifty bucks each, whatever. Are, are you are you very selective about that? Uh, how does that work for you from a business sense? Uh, I'm incredibly selective and careful, um, and. And much to my detriment, um, I suck as a business person. Uh, I always have sucked as a business person. I am an adventurer, a teacher, a creator, um, an artist. That's what I am. I suck at business. In fact, I recently had someone who's been doing uh, the business of teaching bushcraft skills and uh, wild edibles for many years, and he, and he was asking me about how can I, how can I, you know, I'm there's so many so many people in this market now. Oh my God, there's so many YouTube channels and everybody's showing bushcraft and everybody's teaching wild edibles and how do I, you know, compete with that? And 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 I had to ask him. I said, Are you asking me from business or are you asking me philosophically? Because if you're asking me philosophically, all right, I'll take. Let's talk. I will I will advise you. But if you're asking me about business, I don't know. I haven't got a clue. Because I do not do anything from a business side of it, um, and uh, I, you know, in the end, he was asking for business, so that ended that conversation. But but the bottom line is, I'm also not stupid, and I love seeing my name on things. So I have a relationship with Hella Knives out of Norway, handmade knives. They're beautiful. Couldn't be more proud of them. I have a relationship with LT Wright Knives with all new forging tools and Chef's Knife, Chef Paul Rogalski is doing for our Wild Health Har- Harvest series. Couldn't be more proud. I have swag. That you can get on my on my website, right? The T-shirts and sweatshirts and coffee cups—that's just swag. But when it comes to merchandise, I'm a pain in the butt. I once worked with Camillus Knives; they wanted to make everything cheap, go through China, all this cheap material and steel. And sure, I would have made a million bucks in Walmart, but I wouldn't be proud of it. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm tough. I'm a I'm a thorn in the side that way to anybody who knows really big business because I'm not into it you know i'm into creating and getting people into nature and if along the way i have some merchandise that does well awesome another one hennessy hammocks phenomenal hammocks they still sell them survivor man branded hammocks but these are piecemeal select high quality and uh you know nate honestly i'll probably die like that i don't i don't see myself you know as selling out if you will um but i don't also hold others accountable hey god bless bear grills go ahead make he's laughing all the way to the bank but it's just that's not much dick do you uh, by the way you can uh, shout out your website if uh, you want to if anyone's listening on here and wants to know how to get to it is it survive survivor man it's it's just (laughs) lestroud.ca But Even what I really love to shout out instead would be my YouTube channel because that's where everything goes these days. I'm constantly uploading new content, directors, commentaries. So my YouTube channel is just Survivor Man Les Stroud, easy to find. And if they're a fan and they did not know that, you can see everything I've ever done there. And the, the ticket to that is go to the playlists and then find what you like. One one quick question before I let Nate jump in. Uh, I want to ask you, um, where is your... 
because you you know you're this authentic guy and you're you know you're not branded for one network per se even though people might think oln like where is your popularity base is there one place where it's you know centered like canada or is it in rural places all around the world or is it among city centers like where would you say your your base of popularity is because you're massively popular around the world uh you know i i'm, I'm sorry to say this because i'm a, i'm i'm a very proud to be a canadian but uh uh, it's America. The United States is, is you know, is, is Survivor Man Gaga, which is great. <laughs> then it's Canada, and then it's everywhere else around the world. Okay. And uh, speaking of uh, a popular American TV show, there's a, one pop culture moment for you that you've called a career highlight. Uh, in 2007, uh, there was that episode of The Office entitled Survivor Man that Steve Carell wrote because he and his spouse, Nancy Walls, loved your show. How how does that live on in your in your memory, and how often does it come up that you know that you actually inspired an episode of a popular TV comedy? Mm, well, it comes up pretty often actually, and um, at the time, I actually watched. Well, they called me, they contacted me, and honestly, uh, they, they I was going to hopefully appear, um, or they were going to at least use some footage from the show. But then what happened was the writer strike happened that very week. And so they said, listen, we're going forward with the show, but we're not allowed by union rules to change anything now. So we're going with the show that Steve wrote. Steve Carell only ever wrote two episodes of The Office, and that was one of them. And uh, it's also, And then when they aired it, they aired it when they were at their peak ratings, and it's the middle of the season. On their, it's, like, it's basically like their peak episode. And I got to see it for the first time when it aired on television. So honestly, that the answer is surreal. I'm sitting there going, oh my God, I, 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 I don't know if I want to own this phrase too much, but it feels like I think I just made it. Like it, just, it was the most awesome thing. And then the King of the Hill did the very same thing as well in cartoon. So there's been a few references out there, uh, but that was, that was huge. I've never met the man. One day I will hope to meet him at a... I don't know I don't, if it'll ever happen, but meet him somewhere at some kind of official thing, and, and I'll just go. I'll just walk up to him. <laughs> and I should mention, of course, uh, the the co-creator of the Office series, Greg Daniels, worked on King of the Hill, and I think a lot of the there was a lot of writers who started on King of the Hill and and went and went to the went to the uh, uh, office. What what did I uh, what was what in terms of that episode i have to ask what 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 was what did uh, michael scott what rookie mistakes did he did michael scott scott commit in that oh i mean several <laughs> uh, <laughs> but in many ways honestly uh well eating the mushrooms was obviously a critical <laughs> mushrooms without knowing what they were uh sacrificing his pants without really thinking it through uh but otherwise you know he actually touched on things that were quite real. The funniest part that he touched on that was quite real was the freedom of believing you can't be seen or heard and you're completely alone. And it's starting to like say stupid things and sing at the top of his lungs because I've done that. I have, you know, you just, you start talking out loud when you're out there alone. And, uh, oh, I thought that was, or, you know, looking at, you know, he's been two hours now without food and his, I mean, and he's famished, you know. I mean, it was funny. It was. I. I, I loved that whole thing. Was a, just tickled me pink. And uh, yeah, well, that was a good era. Seeing when other stuff that was going down. That was the era when when all of a sudden the networks were 
uh, in a word or in a sentence ripping me off, uh, that moment was a highlight. It was like, yeah, well, you know what? The office just just uh, parodied my show, so I'm thrilled. <laughs> Les, I'm going to switch gears here. Uh, we got a couple more questions left, so thank you for giving us this much time. But um, it's... You know, I, traditionally, me and Nate, you know, we generally, you know, we do the four major North American sports and we talk to athletes. And so I'm just going to segue from that into a question that I think maybe the, the the answer to this may be what anyone's listening to this wants to hear when knowing we have you on or we've had you on, which is, OK, so the Avalanche won the cup this year and they have a Bigfoot patch on the shoulder of their jersey. Now, you've made some news lately, a lot of news now about the pursuit of Bigfoot Sasquatch. Can you give us background on where you see this pursuit going? And for those that don't know anything about this, just how this all started? Yeah, I think where it's going is I think it's going to fizzle out. I think it had a, its moment, its day in the sun. Uh, but, I, I, you know, it's 15 minutes of fame. I think that's kind of passe pass now. Um, I, for, and I have a lot of re- – I could get into depth as to why, but I think that's where it's going. Um, but as far as where it came from, uh, at least, you know – with me, why I'm very proud of the Survivor Man Bigfoot series is because to this day, it is held up as, as kind of the golden standard of series that took the, the phenomenon seriously. And that's the way I always looked at it. To me, you would never des- I would never describe myself as a Bigfoot researcher or a Bigfoot fanatic. Or I am a documentary filmmaker who found fascination with the phenomenon. And, and in many ways, it was more the people who are the researchers that also became very fascinating to me, those people. Um, and that's the way I approached it. And so I did, I did in the end um, 11 episodes, actually. There was an extra one. Uh, and uh, I went through a metamorphosis myself, you know, starting with, well, is this just a big ape that lives out there that we haven't caught yet? Or, and, you know, landing on, oh, my gosh, I'm not sure what this thing is or what it even means. Um, but in the end, if, if you, you know... If you ask me this question at a party and you do it with that kind of tone, like, hey, dude, do you believe in Bigfoot? I'm out. I'm like, the conversation's over. I'm not going to tell you. you know? But if right. you ask me, you know, skeptically, or, or yeah, skeptically, like, could there be a bipedal, you know, uh, hominid species with all these different attributes for thousands of years, you know, with, with legends that cross the continents and hundreds of cultures and thousands of sightings? That, you know, what's the plausibility? That's a different conversation to have. For the most part, people just giggle too much about it now. Right. And I, again, I'll leave this by saying, if they were to instead look at it like, hey, it's a phenomenon. Why don't you check out and get interested in the phenomenon? Don't forget the fantasy part. Look at it as a phenomenon, and then you'll see there's a, it's pretty fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Nate. And something that I wish people would take, you know, more seriously, obviously, is, you know, the, you know, the climate change and stuff. Uh, how how much of that is do you sort of incorporate in, in into your into the message you're trying to spread through through what you create? Uh, I have uh, vacillated on that uh, because sometimes I think about my position um, and my platform and responsibility. Uh, sometimes I slip down a dark hole of fatalism and 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 think more selfishly. Um, and in the end, Nate, what I really do is I land on what we started with in this conversation, as a matter of fact. I realize that my best um, self, if you will, is really 
trying to get people back out into nature so that, that they will then be, be affected by nature itself. And nature itself, Mother Earth, if you will, will it's the energy of it, will speak to them on their level and then maybe they will be inclined to live right, to treat the environment with more respect. Um, I think in the end, though, pragmatically speaking, if I had changed anything, and you asked me about business earlier, I think if I, when I was, when money was flowing a lot more in the middle of doing Survivor Man and Beyond Survival and Bigfoot, I might have been more inclined to say, how can I increase these numbers and then put that into actually purchasing big tracts of land and just simply locking the door and protecting it. Um, that would be, that's one way. But other than that, honestly, Nate, sometimes I can be a little bit of a fatalist with it and, and just feel like, oh, for, you know, oh, this is hell in a handbag time. And so that always leads me back to what can I do? You know what? I know how to show people the, 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 mag, the magnificence of nature. Do that. Just keep doing that and get Nate and Neil out there, you know, even if it's just fishing. You know, so that they remember what it's like to see fresh, clean water and pine trees and smell that air. And then when they make their decisions, maybe they'll be, you know, more informed, more in touch emotionally to, to the natural world. I hope that answers your question. Well, that's, that's bang on. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to wrap it up here, kind of a two-parter. Um, do you feel like COVID helped us get in tune with nature? And I say that in... Just thinking about how many people just started going outside for walks and maybe went through their local park like, you know, you did in Mimico as a kid. And we saw a real spike in growing vegetables and that type of thing. So did COVID in some way, you know, help the idea of, of appreciating the outdoors that will last? I will answer that by saying yes. And the optimist in me will say, I'll take anything I can get. And this is something. And uh, so, yeah, we saw a spike, uh, uh, for example, in recreational vehicles um, and, and RV camping, glamping, all of that. And you know what? I'm not against that. I'm all for it. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't have a problem with technology. I'm not, I don't want people to go all up, back out in, in, in birch bark canoes and, you know, living off the land and all that. That's, that's, that's silly. Um, but I do want them out there and being influenced by it. And if that means they get now, now I draw the line, however, at, at convincing yourself that you're being nature oriented and a nature nut when all you really do is water ski, you know, <laughs> when all you really do are ropes courses or adventure racing even. And I, I'm an adventure racer. No, I draw the line and say, no, those are sports. Those are utilizing the natural world for a sport. There's a difference between that and connecting to nature. So, so the, the, again, the answer to your question, Neil, is uh, I, I think yes. I think that, that, that people turn to the outdoor pursuits in many ways because they didn't know what else to do. It's local. They can make it happen. And, and, and I, I guess my hope is that in that, somewhere some 13 year old kid that ended up on a hiking trail simply because his parents were bored because they were, couldn't go to italy this year because of this damn pandemic and they oh well we're going to go hiking in algonquin park and that 13 year old kid might not have done that otherwise is going wow i actually think i really like nature so i'm gonna i'm, t I'm like i say i'll take what i can get well, you know, you, you mentioned in a, in, a, in a CBC article that uh, I just read about your documentary on Laloche uh, and the Dene High School trip 
He said, nature, basically, if I can read the quote back, you know, it says nature can heal. It's power enough, powerful enough to heal regardless of what you do. So um, I thought that was a pretty important uh, quote. And, and I, does it apply to more than just that that documentary? Does it apply in general? Yeah, I mean, when you think about something like the concept of forest bathing, uh, Shinrin Yoku from Japan, which is basically just go out and sit beside, like I'm talking to you right now from a hotel room, okay? It's right. right. But I can look across, and from my field of view, I can see what looks to be about a quick count, quick guess count, probably 35 trees. Now, I'm in the middle of the city, but there's no reason I can't go in the sit in the shade of one of those trees. And that is better than not doing it. The, people in hospital rooms will heal quicker and require less painkillers if they can simply see a tree outside their window. window. Now, that's scientists. That's science. That's researched, peer-reviewed science, all right? So imagine that, but now apply it to going for a walk in the wilderness. So, yes, I believe that even if you're in a bad mood, even if you're, you're grumpy, even if you are doing sports, I still think all the better you get out into nature because – what happens there is you want to talk aromatherapy? Well, you go step in, into Algonquin Park. That's a, a combination of, by the billion of chemicals that are you're breathing in, that are that are lapping on your skin, that are that are going through your 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 going through your hair. All of that's happening, whether you like it or not. That's the cool part: is nature is healing and distressing you, whether you want it to or not. And and that's pretty awesome, I think. It is. You know what, Les? Thank you so much for giving giving us this much time. I know you're a busy man. So, um, yeah, on behalf of myself and Nate, uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been my pleasure, guys. And, and again, for everybody, the book is called Wild Outside, Around the World with Survivor Man, my first children's book. Um, and uh, it is written to your kid to, to, to uh, show them some adventures, teach them some lessons based on adventures, and let's not forget I put in activities they can actually do even in your own backyard yard. So it's, it's, it's for your kids. And, and uh, guys, I'm really uh, grateful that you've had me on. Thank you. Thank you, Les. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.